All right. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for coming back for, for round two. Uh, today's going to be a little bit different. I got the flip chart, so you know there's going to be at least some audience participation. Uh, so last time when we met, we talked pretty extensively uh, about where the Bible came from. We gave a lot of background on what makes the book unique, um, how it was built through the ages. Um, Nathan likes to talk about it not being delivered on a cloud from heaven. It obviously was not. Um, so we're going to build on that today, and we're going to start talking about ways to read it to get the most out of it. Because the Bible, uh, unlike most other books, is not limited to a single genre. Most books you pick it up, it's either uh, poetry or pose. It's either uh, a book of history or a novel or a biography. Uh, the Bible is many, many different flavors. Uh, we have, for example, in the Bible, we have histories, we have narratives, we have allegories, we have parables, we have poetry, we have apocryphal or prophetic writings, uh, just to name a few. There are songs included, there are funeral dirges included, um, so there's a, a lot of different things, and hopefully at this point we already know um, that you wouldn't read a book of poetry the same way that you would a book of history. Uh, they're very different. Same thing, I wouldn't read an autobiographical work the same as I would a novel, for example. So we have to know uh, about the book in order to understand what, what we're reading. So what we're going to do, uh, we're going to use the book of Acts, primarily chapter 1 today, um, and then slowly work our way through a couple chapters of the beginning of the book throughout the next couple weeks. But we're really going to learn how to read the Bible uh, trying to draw some of the context, trying to, to draw some of the connections from other parts of scriptures, but really looking at it as if this was the first time you were looking at the story and trying to put the pieces together. Uh, in a way, we're going to be biblical sleuths. We're going to play Sherlock Holmes and try and pick up all the clues and all the pieces and put them together into a one big meta-narrative that will hopefully begin to understand it a little better. So uh, just to start off, we're going to talk about some keys to studying Scripture. And the first one is we're going to learn to observe rather than just to look. So it's pretty easy to look at something, right? We do it all the time. And in fact, most of the information that we look at throughout the course of a day gets filtered out and completely forgotten. However, observing something is a lot different. Uh, if I were to look at my son, for example, I can see him there, and then I can quickly forget what he's doing. However, if I take a moment to observe what's happening, I can tell you he's wearing a gray shirt, he's got a yellow-orange hoodie on, he's wearing a red and black jacket, and he currently is carrying around what looks like a yellow tractor. So there's a lot of things that I can pick up, and there's a million more details that I could pick up uh, if I were to spend the time and catalog them all out. We're going to start doing the same thing with Scripture. It's really easy to just read the story and miss all of the little points where things connect. So our first thing is that we're going to really begin to observe what is happening in Scripture. So uh, just to give you the primer, and then I'm going to give you a whole bunch of, of strategies, but just to give you the primer, to observe Scripture, uh, we're going to start looking for the who's. So all the people involved, all the persons that are part of the story or external to the story, who's talking, who's listening. Uh, we're going to start looking at the what, what's happening. We're going to start looking at the where. Uh, believe it or not, it's actually pretty important to some of the stories where things are happening. 
and nothing happens in a vacuum. So the place that it's happening both locally as well as geographically or geopolitically is important. We'll look at the when. Uh, timelines are also important. Stories build typically from a beginning point to a climax to an ending point. So knowing where we are in the whole story is also important, as well as where we are in history, because uh, I'm a bit of a history buff, not that I know a lot, but uh, I like seeing where things fit in the long timeline. And one of these times I'm going to bring in my, my big long chart that I got from the Creation Museum that has major world events, and we'll start looking at where things occur as well, because that is also uh, quite important when we're making references to outside events, <coughs> as well as where things are happening, particularly in the story of Scripture. We also have the why. So these are a little bit more difficult questions, uh, but the why. Why is this happening? Why are these events related? Why are these two things linked? Why are they different? Why is this reaction different than this reaction? We're start asking those why questions as well. And finally, I'm going to borrow uh, I'm going to borrow William Hendricks word here and the wherefore. Why is this happening? Wherefore is this happening? Uh, it's a bit of a made-up word, but basically it means what's the progression? Why why is this part of the story? To whom is this projected? Uh, it's going deeper than just the why, but also asking what does this mean in the context and who is it being projected to? Okay, so who is the audience, essentially? Why is this important to the audience? The way that we're going to answer those questions, so the who, the what, the why, the where, the when, and the wherefore, we're going to do a couple of things. Um, we're going to make note of any terminology uh, that is either odd, uh, out of place, seemingly significant. Uh, for example, there are, uh, there are words in the Bible that are different than what we use in everyday life. Believe it or not, uh, besides for Christian-type circles, the words Holy Spirit is used very, very rarely. Um, things like proselytizing outside of religion are very, very rare. Okay, So those are kind of, I don't want to say key for a particular passage, which those are things that are only coming up in Scripture, so they're worth investigating. Words like love, faith, uh, things that are very key to what we believe, again, are worth investigating where they fit, as well as things that we just don't necessarily understand. Uh, we may have read the word baptized, for example, many times, but there's a lot of different connotations that come up with that word. So it's worth looking to see why that particular word is used. Um, usually this is a rabbit hole that you can fall into and then just keep going and going and going because as soon as you find out the meaning of one word, you're like, well, maybe it's different or maybe this subtext is slightly different, so maybe I should look at another word too. And It, it tends to snowball. Um, I think that's a good thing because it teaches us what the original authors are actually meaning, but that's our first thing that we're going to start doing when we, when we start observing what Scripture is saying. Uh, we're going to start by looking at terminology, making notes of words that are worth at least to us, initially worth investigating. And the greatest thing about it is as you start to build a bit of a, a larger biblical language, you won't have to go back and look up words quite as often. You'll have a better catalog uh, of what you expect. Next thing we're going to do is we are going to go back for the context. Uh, we heard Jacob today talk an awful lot about why context is very important. It builds the story around the story. Uh, I used the example last week of 
if somebody handed you the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence and you had no idea what was happening in the world at that time, those documents would be pretty much meaningless. Uh, it's just a bunch of words on the page. Same thing if somebody handed you the Magna Carta and you just read through it and you had no idea what world events were happening at the time, it wouldn't really mean a whole lot. Same thing with Scripture. We want to get an idea of what's happening around the story, who's being spoken to, who the speaker is, their backgrounds. And even if we don't have the entire story, the more context we can build, the better we can understand what's actually happening. So terminologies, context, we're going to look at the atmosphere of the world. And I know this is, this is kind of talking heady, but the atmosphere of what's going on. A lot of times there is not just this thin line of the story that we're tracing from beginning to end. Um, if you've ever watched a war movie, for example, there's a very small chunk of the story that's being told. So if you've watched Band of Brothers or Saving Private Ryan or We Are Soldiers or Tears of the Sun or, or any of those war movies, there's this little narrative that we're, we're witnessing. But there's a whole bigger picture of what's going on, not just context, but also political pressures, geopolitical climate. There is, um, I mean, even the weather, whether it's a drought, a famine, uh, a time of plenty, uh, a time of rebellion in the land, all those things add into the way the people who are receiving these original messages are feeling how they're going to take the message. So we're looking at the atmosphere of the story as well. Uh, very important things once we have this background information is we're going to look at who's involved. So who are the people involved? Who's speaking? who's being told a story about, who's listening to the story, uh, to whom is this story being portrayed. Then we're going to start really digging in and say, okay, now that we have this, this story, we have this mural behind us, we're going to start trying to connect dots. So what is related to what? What are the causes? What are the effects? Uh, Prophecy is a great one for this one because you can look and say, okay, this is what was said was going to happen. Normally, the reason it says that it's going to happen is because originally the Israelites did something that they shouldn't have or they did something that they should have. So there's your cause. The prophet steps in and says, here's what's going to happen. And then there's an effect. So we have the cause and the effect. Same thing, uh, we have parables that have a message, a cause and an effect. Uh, we have the story themselves that usually have a cause and effect. So we're, again, just trying to put those points together so we have a better idea of where that string is going, kind of uh, it using the idea of a tapestry or something. We're going to grab a thread and start pulling and see where we end up. Once we have all this stuff figured out, that's when we can really do the harder work, pulling out the books, things like that, and really start to define what we're doing. So we've, we've made a catalog of words that we might need to look up. Now we're going to do the hard work of looking it up. Uh, we have noted where, at least if it says in the scripture, where these events are happening. Now we can actually pull out the map and say, okay, where is this? And then, once we've done all this stuff, we've built this big picture of what's going on, then we're going to step back and say, okay, where does this fit in the story of Scripture? So this is why it's the more you know, the more you've read, uh, the more of the Bible that is memorized, that you can meditate on, the more of the, the big story we know, the better we can place where it fits in the larger picture uh, of the story of the Bible. So again, we're looking at who, what, where, when, why, and wherefore. We're looking at terminology. We're looking at context. We're looking at atmospheres. We're looking at the who's and the when's. We're trying to find those cause and effect relationships. 
We're going to take any terminology that we didn't understand, uh, any terminology that was different than what we expected, any terminology that just was like, hey, this word stood out to me, uh, and we're going to define them. And then finally, we're going to take that passage that we're looking at, and we're going to try and place it back in the bigger story. So if you've noticed, there's a whole lot of background information going on. Uh, I don't know if anybody has ever done this to you, but they fire up the TV and they put you right in the middle of a longer story, a series of shows where there is a big picture story going on and this little picture inside that singular episode. We might get the, the narrative, we might get the story of that single message of that episode of the, the movie or episode of the TV show, but we're probably missing out on the, the big story that's happening over the season or several seasons uh, of the TV show. This is what we're doing. We're taking that episode, we're trying to fully understand that episode, but then also trying to step back enough that we can see what's happening throughout the entire story. Okay, so that's the background. That's what we're going to talk about today. That's the strategies that we're going to build today. So again, like I said, we're going to do our best to make this as practical as possible from the very beginning. And so we're going to dig through the first chapter of Acts. Okay, uh, and I'm just a guide here, so I'm going to try and draw as much of the information as I can out of you guys. Uh, I have books if we really get that far, but at least initially we're just going to try and catalog all of these interesting things, all these noteworthy items as we start to try and build this picture, okay? So I've got Acts 1. Uh, I'm going to read from the New American Standard Bible, uh, the 1995 edition, and if anybody has a different version just while we're reading, because we're going to come back to this. If anybody has a different version, uh, if there are any significant differences that you note, uh, whether you've got the ESV or the NIV or the RSV or the KJV, make a, a little note uh, on a piece of paper or something, because we're going to come back and we're going to talk about why some of those things are significant. So this is Acts 1, and I'm going to read the whole chapter, so buckle up. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. For what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. 
These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share of the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that, in their own language, that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Okay, so we have a whole lot of stuff going on in the first chapter of Acts. We are primarily going to zero in on just, just for today to kind of build things up, and depending upon how far we get, just the first five verses. But I wanted you guys to have, again, the bigger story here. So we're going to concentrate just on verses 1 through 5, and we're going to start playing this biblical detective. We're going to start reading the passage thoughtfully, and we're going to start asking these questions of the passage. Uh, there are a lot of strategies that we can build into this. So this is the background I got you guys to think about. We're in verses 1 through 5. To, in order to, to read thoughtfully, in order to read, uh, to observe, not just to look, in order to read, to observe, we want to pay attention to what it's telling us. We want to look for those clues that we just talked about, and we want to start asking questions. Those questions, the who, what, why, when, where, uh, as well as how does this relate to everything else. It is very effective to read it multiple times. Um, I don't know if any of you have a favorite book. Uh, my children have favorite books, so much to the point that we get sick of reading them. Uh, there are stories that I could tell you by heart that they have read to them. But there's this unique place that you can be that once you know the story so well, um, again, kids' books are not nearly to the level of Scripture here. But once you know the story so well, you'll start to pick up on things you didn't notice before. Uh, descriptions of the people in the story, uh, the way that the beginning and the end relate. Even the little stuff, and if you have a, a more favorite book, something that's a little headier, uh, like a science fiction novel or fantasy novel or something like that, uh, where it spans multiple volumes, if you've read it a few times, you read it more than once, you start to pick up on all the clues that you may not have seen before. Uh, Nathan is a big Lord of the Rings fan. For example, there's a whole lot in that story that's going on that you probably won't pick up on the first time you read The Hobbit, but you'll understand a whole lot better if you read The Hobbit again after going through the entire series. So same thing. The more times we can read it, the better. Um, one of the things that we can do to prompt us 
as to what's actually happening or clue us in on things that might be different is seeing the differences between translations. So we talked about last time the history of the Bible and where it came from, moving from Hebrew to Greek and then the Septuagint or from Greek to another language or Greek to English, there are nuances of the original languages that the scholars who have built our Bibles do their best to convey, but they might be a little bit different. Um, we use some pretty interesting language uh, in English to convey things. There are nuances to English. Uh, for example, I, I come from Michigan, so a fizzy soda fountain drink is called pop to us. It's pop. If you start going a little further south or a little further west, it becomes soda or it becomes soda pop. If you go far enough south, it becomes Coke. Everything is Coke. So if I were to say, I want a Coke in Georgia, it might mean something different than if I said, I want a Coke in Washington State or New York State. With that in mind, this is where translations have nuanced differences because the way that we understand our own language, English, and the way that we are translating from the, the nuances of Greek can sometimes be different. So all of that background to say, uh, I read the NASB. Does anybody out there have a different version of the Bible that they're reading from tonight? ESV? Okay. Anything else? King James. All right. Okay. Anything else? All right, ESV, okay. So you may have noticed a couple of differences in the way things are constructed. Maybe words are moved to different places. Uh, you may have noticed that uh, the phrasing is a little bit different. Are there any significant, again, just the first five chapters here, are there any differences that we saw, either KJV, ESV, or what I read on the NASB that we think is of note? Audience participation. <laughs> And again, I understand this is a very small chunk, but we're playing Sherlock Holmes here, so no detail is too small, at least initially. Sure, yeah, and, and that, that is exactly it. It's going to say the same thing, uh, but a lot of times those, or at least it should say the same thing, uh, but a lot of times those small differences might clue us into points of deeper consideration. Okay, and a lot of this is going to take some patience too. I mean, we're not going to solve all of Scripture in a single night, obviously. Uh, we've got at least four more weeks to do it. With that in mind, uh, it will take some time. It's going to take some rereading, and I'm going to encourage you all too. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of homework as we go home tonight. Uh, we're going to be looking at, like I said, the first chapter of Acts, really the first five-ish chapters of Acts uh, all together is our, our bigger chunk of Scripture that we're going to, we're going to consider. Uh, I'm going to encourage you guys to reread it multiple times, to, to find another version of the Bible, to even go so far as to read a, a paraphrase, um, to 
kind of write out the synopsis or the summary in your own words as well. Again, just to kind of get a clear picture of what we think is going on. So it will take some patience. It's going to take some repetition. Uh, the more, again, the more you read it, the more that we'll see this kind of telescopic effect where we saw little details and then we can see the bigger picture by zooming out a little bit. So if we don't have any real noteworthy things from different versions, uh, we're going to start asking a couple questions of what's going on as well. So, let's start with the easy ones, okay, which are not always as easy as we first assume. And let's start asking some of those questions. So, we are going to attempt to answer some of those questions I gave you at the very beginning. So, first and foremost, the who. So, in the first five verses of the first chapter of Acts, who is involved in this story? Okay, we have the author, probably Luke. Okay. Okay, so we're writing to Theophilus or Theophilus. Yep, we'll call him T, so I don't have to write his name multiple times. Okay, so he's our intended recipient, right? He's the one who's going to get it. All right. What else? Who else is involved in the first first five verses here? We have the entire group of the apostles. Yeah, absolutely. We have the entire group of the apostles. So there are at least 11 other men who have some reference to this story. Okay. Yeah, we have Jesus. Okay, and this should start hopefully prompting some questions. Why? Okay, so we're going to get to the why, obviously, but why would he tell them not to leave this geographic location? Okay, and again, we're going we're gonna to start asking those types of questions. So we've got Luke, uh, we've got Theophilus, we've got Jesus, uh, we have the 11 other disciples in here somewhere. Uh, we have a reference as well to John the Baptist, okay? So just starting there, we have about nine different branches we could take if we really wanted to start investing. So just to put this into the context, your, your favorite mystery TV show, okay? These are all of our leads. We have all these people that we could start to investigate. We could say, okay, who is Luke? We've identified him. Now we have a trail we could start digging into, right? So just for fun, what are some of the things that before we even start opening the books, before we start referencing other parts of Scripture, what are some things that we know just from having been in the culture about Luke? He's a physician, okay? How do we know he's a physician? Okay. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, okay. I'm not going to say you're entirely wrong, but, but uh, there's lots of smartphones in here, right? See if anybody can find a reference to Luke as a physician or a doctor in the Bible itself. There you go. So luckily we have, we have a master on Luke here. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Throw, throw it out there so everybody can see it. Colossians 3. Okay. So there is a reason we know, kind of in the church culture, that Luke is a doctor. It comes from Colossians 3. That's good information to have, right? So already we have found a place that uh, Christian culture, we all just, we have heard it, we assume it, but we don't really know necessarily where it comes from. So knowing this type of thing, this is how we're building that more coherent picture. So we know that Luke is a physician from Colossians 3. If I wanted to follow that thread, I could now say, okay, why in Colossians 3 is Luke identified as a doctor? Or what was being said about Luke where he's identified as a doctor? And again, it's not necessarily a thread we have to pull tonight, but that's the spark that we can start asking those questions about. What do we know about this person? How can we start building this picture? Okay. Do we know any other major things about Luke that we'd also want to throw up there that we could, again, we could start investigating? We're looking into Luke's alibis. We're looking into his history. We're trying to figure out who this guy is because he has a set purpose for this portion of Scripture, right? He's writing this for some reason. So the more we know about him, the more we can piece together the story. Okay, so we've got, we've got Luke. Anything else, anything else of note about Luke, something that we'd want to, again, this is just stuff that we know about him, and this is also where a Bible handbook or the Internet, uh, lots of other resources, Blue Letter Bible, eSword, where you could type in his name and you can start seeing lots and lots of references to who Luke is, uh, both historically what we know about him extra-biblically uh, and what we know about him biblically. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. Yep. So we're trying to, again, I'm playing the detective here. If I wanted to stand in front of a jury, I'm trying to figure out what I can know uh, as a, a nugget of truth or a kernel that is absolutely true that is backed up by something else in the Scripture versus what I know probably based upon external historical data or uh, something that can be surmised based upon the ev- evidence I know. And what is quite literally uh, legend or myth. It might have a piece of truth in it, but there's no really verifiable truth. Okay? Uh, so some other things that we do know about Luke that, that could be of interest, his history, for example, uh, where he traveled, uh, who his traveling companions were, why he's writing this. Okay, we have a recipient here, which unfortunately there is not a ton known about Theophilus or why Luke was writing this particular letter to him. Um, 
But it's an interesting, again, there's not a whole, again, a lot of verifiable proofs about him, but it is an interesting, that is also an interesting path to take. Why did Theophilus uh, warrant this writing? And it, again, an interesting thread that you can start pulling on to start asking those questions. And especially if you walk into a conversation with somebody, these are the types of questions that make you sound more real and show that you are a real person, not just regurgitating the doctrine or the line that you have heard presented to you for the last, you know, however long that you have, have been in a, in a church culture. So this is, this is the good stuff to know, the stuff that makes it more real, because this is, this is a real story. It's not just uh, a Bible story in a kid's book that you read or, or had read to you a long time ago where the details have been forgotten. Okay, so we've got Luke, uh, we've got Theophilus, we have the 11 other disciples here. I keep saying 11, why am I saying 11? Because one of them is gone, okay, which that is also an interesting story. Uh, if you know enough to start digging that and seeing the comparisons of where Judas went and how he died. Um, again, another, another thread we can pull. So we have a list here of people, and again, this is just this is just to whet the appetite. We're not actually going to, to start interpreting any of this stuff yet. This is just reading strategies. So this is just who, right? This is all we've done so far is just this is the who of in, in these first five verses of one chapter in the entirety of the Bible. So this is a small slice, okay? So after we have found out who is in this passage. We've investigated some of these important figures. The next thing we can ask is what? What's going on? This is an important both in the broad scheme but also in the small scheme. So in these first five verses, what is happening? So we already know that Luke wrote something else. And in order to understand this book, it already seems like there is a call for Luke to say, hey, go check out my other book because I, I wrote that with a purpose too. This is, this is part two. Okay? So what's happening? He's writing a, a second volume. Okay? Okay? So this is where we can dig into the language. Um, when he's talking about what there, is he talking about himself or is he talking about Jesus? Exactly. So we have another what here. What's, what is Luke doing? He's writing this message. And we're going to look at the why here in just a second too, but kind of hold on to that. What he's doing is he's writing. He's writing about what happened. In this case, he is referencing his previous book that explained what Jesus did, right, up until the day that he was taken up to heaven. And he is proceeding to tell us what happened after that event as well. Okay? So we have what's happening. We have Luke is going to tell us a story. So this is, this is again, contextually a place that we want to start thinking. This is Luke about to launch into telling us a story. 
We're not necessarily, this is going to give us a clue into like the genre of the book that we're reading as well and what we're going to draw out of it. This is not a letter to a church necessarily. This is not a book of poetry or songs. This is not necessarily a prophetic book where every other line is going to be a message about what's to come. Okay, Luke tells us right here that he is going to tell us the story of what happened after Jesus left. Okay? So now we have, again, we have the who. We have at least one of the what's. We have Luke's, Luke's story. And I would even go so far as this is going to be Luke's story of the beginning of the church. Okay? So we've got Luke writing. And just for brevity, I'm going to say he's writing volume two, okay, of, the, of these events. <clears throat> Anything else that's happening in here? Exactly. There's another what in there. We have what's happening is we have this vision of all of these people they're actually seeing Jesus and they are hearing him, right? We have words here. So they are receiving another what inside of this is a message that's being a final message, really, from Jesus before he leaves earth. And part of that message is not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait, right? So there is a message that's being conveyed from, from Jesus in this, this first, these first five verses. So if you were to identify, again, let's say you're, you're this biblical detective, right? You are building the narrative of what's happening. You're building your timeline. You're setting up your spreadsheet. You've got your bulletin board with the strings on it. Okay, you're starting to make these connections. And you sat down at this and you said, okay, what's happening? Is there a problem that's being fixed? Is there a problem that's being identified? Is there an issue? Is there a story? Is there a, <laughs> is there a message to an audience? So we have Luke's writing here. He's introducing the why he's writing, so we're getting a message from him. We're also seeing a what. In this case, we're seeing uh, Jesus, the story of Jesus being presented and referenced to the entire story before this moment in time, as well as we are getting a message that's going forward. So if you look at this as just a, a blip on a map, this is one event surrounded by a whole lot of pretext and then a whole lot of subtext after it. <clears throat> Okay, I think I've, I've beat up what quite a bit here. So where? Where is this happening? And is that significant? Where is this happening? Okay, so it's definitely going to be in or around Jerusalem, right? Now, I made you read the whole chapter, or at least I read the whole chapter for you, uh, so that you could start to pick up on some of these clues as well. Right? Do we have an even better idea of where this is happening.
Yep, it references the Mount Olivet. So they're standing on top of something, right? Now, here again is where we have to take that, that momentary step back and say, Luke is not standing there on the mountain. He's telling a story about events that transpired. So he's giving us a timeline that he's putting these events on, right? So in Luke's narrative here, yes, as these events are unfolding, we have this first snapshot, this first clip of the movie. We have uh, the disciples, and they are on the Mount Olivet, and there is an event happening, right? So it would be interesting, again, here's another thread you could pull, is you could say, okay, where is Olivet? We also have uh, some clues in, this, in the scripture right there again in verse 12, which says that Olivet is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day journey away. Who in here knows what a Sabbath day journey is? Or where that comes from? Okay? A shorter walk, yeah. I mean, uh, and that, uh, that's as far as I'll go with that again. That's a thread you can pull. And this is to whet the appetite. These are the questions to start asking and answering. Uh, again, Google is your friend here. There's a lot of places that you can go to find out this information. So, uh, again, this is another note that I would make. We are a Sabbath day walk from Jerusalem. So if I wanted to pull out a map, I could do a little circle and say, okay, there's somewhere within this area. Is it significant? Well, Jesus tells them not to leave Jerusalem, so at least it seemed important to, to Jesus where they were for now. And then if, again, atmospherically, if we're looking at all of the events that are happening around this singular event, Jerusalem is a pretty important place. Jerusalem is still a pretty important place. Jerusalem will continue to be a pretty important place. So with all those things in mind, we can start asking the questions, okay, this place, is this place significant? Why would this place be significant? Yeah. So now we're getting into the, the why and the wherefore. Yes. So Jesus told them not to go away from this place. And so the next questions would be when and why. And in this passage that's very astute, Dink, they are kind of intertwined. So when, when is this event happening? So again, we can look at this in a multiple multiple timelines. We could say when in Scripture this is happening, when in history this is happening, when in this small story is happening. So from the broad pictures, when is this particular event taking place? Again, if we were only reading this portion of Scripture, just the, the first chapter of Acts, and then what little information we have known before and after, when in the story of Scripture, is this happening? Yes, there was an important event. The crucifixion happened before this happened. Okay? That's not the only thing, though, right? There's some other things that happen. And there are things inside this five verses that tells us that happens just before this event. So we know it's, we know it's after the crucifixion. 
Anything else? Sorry? Exactly, yeah. So we have the reference right in here that says, the first account I can post, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering. So there is a period of time, which we know, uh, that period of time, even though it's not specifically said in this verse, uh, we know that time from the crucifixion to his ascension, there's this period of time where stuff is also happening. Luke is kind of glossing over that, uh, but that is significant because it happens after those events as well. It didn't happen just right after the crucifixion. It happens after Jesus is visible and seen by multiple people, uh, multitudes of people really, on earth before he is uh, taken up to heaven. So yes, it's after the crucifixion, uh, it's after he is seen on earth. Okay, what about some things that it's before? Again, we have clues in this, things that, that this event is happening before, right? These five verses are happening before one of the most significant things that happens in all of Scripture. So verses 4 and 5 give us the clues as to what's the next big thing, right? So what's the next big thing? They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. They're waiting for Pentecost. Okay? So they're waiting for the ascension. Yeah, even in this moment, at least up until these first five verses, the ascension isn't going to happen for a couple more verses. So yeah, they're they're on this mountaintop with Jesus. He's giving his final words to them, and they're waiting for something to happen. And at least, again, in, in these five verses, this, this snapshot, this scene of the movie, they don't know where Jesus is going yet. They don't know if he's staying or if he's going for, for certain. Uh, Jesus has been telling them what's going to happen since he started speaking to them. But in this moment, uh, you can even see from their reactions uh, down in verse 6, that they're still thinking that Jesus is going to establish his earthly, earthly kingdom right now. Okay, so this is, again, significant on a timeline scale in this, the small story. This is just talking about the story from Jesus' birth to Jesus' ascension. If we look at a, a bigger picture, when is this happening in the history of the world? So this is post-Egypt, post-Babylon, post-Greek, well, at least the vast majority of the Greek history. This is solely in the middle of, in the middle-ish of the Roman Empire. This is predating all of the major Germanic stuff that happens. Um, and then, of course, anything in the, the current epochs of time. So in, in the middle of the story kind of is, is this event, world history-wise. In the story of the Bible, this is kind of the exclamation point between the, I don't want to say necessarily the old way, but this is the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Everything up until this point uh, has been leading to Jesus, 
And then everything after this point is the instructions going forward or the story going forward or the continuation. So if you look at it this way, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to discount the Gospels in any way, shape, or form, but if you look at it in this way, this is a crux moment. This is the establishment of the church that's happening. So the when, even in this first five verses here, all of a sudden becomes a whole lot more important, right? It's easy to gloss over these first five verses of Acts, but when we start putting those things back in, asking these questions, this is a pretty important event that's happening. And not necessarily just because Jesus is ascending, although that is extremely important. Uh, there's a lot of other events that are also culminating right here. So again, if we're talking about threads that we can start asking questions about, threads that we can start pulling on here, we can start asking, why is this moment in history? What is this moment in history? When are all these things coming together? So um, when here, yes, we're after the crucifixion, we're after Jesus is being seen, we are in the moments, those precious few moments right before Jesus ascends, and his earthly presence is no more. Okay, so we're, we're kind of at a crossroads in, in human history. Okay, so now we get to the fun questions. Why? There's a whole lot of whys to be answered in, again, just these five verses. First and foremost, uh, we're going to pull it back just a step. And go back to Luke. Why is Luke writing this message? Okay, that's the first question I would have. If Luke's going to write this, he's identified himself. <clears throat> uh, and he's telling us who he's writing to. Why is he doing this? And I'm open to, to any and all answers here. Why, why, is, why is Luke writing this book of Acts? Why has he started this compilation? Okay. That, I mean, that is certainly, certainly an option, certainly a question. Uh, one of the whys could be, yes. Is he preparing the people... In this case, Theophilus, right? We've identified Theophilus as at least the, the main target of the work. Is he preparing them for what's to come, for the, the coming of the Holy Spirit? Anything else? And this is, a, this is a great, like I said, they kind of fit together, right? The when and the why. So if this is at that point of the beginning of the church, right? Later in the Bible, we're going to have all the letters from Paul. Uh, assuming that some of these churches were not necessarily full of people who had been in Jerusalem while these happened or eyewitnesses to the events, this is the background story, Right? So if I'm a Christian in Galatia, or if I'm a Christian in Philadelphia, or if I'm a Christian in Rome, I may not know this background story. So yeah, absolutely. It could be 
Absolutely, the intent is to, to write this message to uh, Theophilus so that he can s- tell the story. He, yep, he names he names the eleven. So he is in this first this first little snapshot. He is not only stating his purpose; he's also building his credibility. Uh, if you wanted to take Luke seriously, and I were to pick up this Acts of the Apostle, uh, this scroll, and say, "Okay, I want to know what happened and where the church originated." Am I going to take the word of a guy named Luke? He's not only telling us the story here, he's also at least planting a stake for his credibility. Right? He's referencing the disciples. He's referencing the 11 apostles by name in this chapter. So yeah, there, there's, there's definitely an element of that. So he's He's writing this message. Why? He's writing this message to Theophilus because he thinks Theophilus needs it for one reason or another. Uh, The book itself, again, if we look at the the broader sweep of history, the book of Acts has been preserved because the church believed that it was an important message to preserve as the New Testament was being assembled, like we talked about last week. Uh, It was important for us to preserve this history of what happened with the church. So we could definitely say that that Luke had some prompting that this story was going to be important. Uh, He states uh, the purposes of his previous work in here was to write about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. And then we have kind of the introduction after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning of the kingdom of God, gathering together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, and then he hits them with the, this is the event that's coming. Okay? So why is a deep question? And again, we're not going to solve it all tonight, This is just to whet the appetite, but we have about five or six different why questions that we could answer. Why is he writing the book? Why is he writing it to Theophilus? Why is he writing it now? Why, once we're in the story, there's a bunch more why questions. We have uh, why is Jesus leaving after this period of time? Why did Jesus wait 40 days after being resurrected to leave? Uh, why is he telling his disciples to stay in this small geographical location? Uh, why is he speaking to them this one last time on the mountain? Uh, it's not necessarily like the deathbed speech, but there's an element of that deathbed speech in it as well. These are the last words of Jesus on earth. Why would Jesus be giving this message to these men? So again, why is a, is a pretty deep question. And then the wherefore or the contextual question, so what? 
So we, we did some of this digging. We listed a bunch of questions. And now the, probably the most important question as far as taking this big expansive thing that we have just opened up. We opened up five verses of the Bible. I've talked about it for more than a half an hour now. Now we're going to scrunch it back together and say, so what? What is the significance? Yeah, so there's, there's an element of the so what. He's, he's establishing an introduction and a, a proof of credibility. Yeah. Okay, so there is, there's one so what. Is there another purpose? Is there another so what in this passage? So we've, we, again, we've listed all these things, these questions that we've asked, and now we're saying, okay, so what? So yes, looking forward into the rest of the book, especially uh, the letters to come, and then even the uh, implication of the end times. We have an establishment of who Jesus is and where he is. Sure. And there are more. Uh, again, as far as taking it apart, you can dig for as long as you have the strength. I, uh, I guarantee that there is more in these five verses than the things that we have listed here. And the more of the full story we know, the more questions that we can ask of it. Um, just to put this in perspective, now I, I kind of feel like this was a bit of professional harassment as well. Uh, but when I was in school, one of the challenges uh, in my Romans class was we had to take a single verse of the book of Romans and write a 15-page term paper on it. So that's 15 pages out of a single verse, okay? And this is not to brag or anything. I didn't get that great of a grade on it. But here's five verses. So there is lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff to build into this. And it's not any different. I don't want to make it sound like the Bible is different than anything else in the sense of its literary precision. All I mean by that is when I'm speaking to you, there is a background that we're all building in our minds. Uh, Nathan talked about uh, building a foreground and a background, information that we have at the front, information that we have in the back. And then I would argue we have this entire mosaic behind someone that we automatically assume when we hear them speak, when we hear a message, when we read something by that author. Um, me speaking to you today, you all have at least some idea of who I am, the kinds of things that I'm into, uh, where the message is coming from. The more you know about me, 
the more you can pinpoint my purposes in writing. The same thing if you're reading your, your favorite author. Uh, if you go and, and pick up a book, the, the latest thriller by Dean Koontz or you're a Tom Clancy fan or whatever, the more you know about the background of the story he's trying to tell, the more information you can pull from the book itself. The Bible is incredibly unique because it is woven into the actual fabric of history. So these questions allow us to bring all of that information to the forefront where we can then examine it and, like I said, start to build this much broader picture of what Scripture is actually trying to tell us. Okay? And at this point, we haven't, tried, we haven't tried to interpret it. We're not trying to, to bring a message out of it. We're not trying to apply it to anything yet. We are simply trying to say, what are the words on the page telling me if I were to, were to actually observe them rather than just gloss over top of them? Okay, So this is when I warned you guys that we were going to relearn how to read. That's what I mean. So we're going to ask a bunch of questions of Scripture and build a better story. <clears throat> Once we do that, um, there is a lot more to the strategy, so much so that we're going to take all these questions. You guys are going to go home this week, and you're going to uh, hopefully think about them, play with them, maybe look some stuff up, do a little bit of research on your own, and we're going to come back and talk about it even more. Um, but I'm going to give you, again, some more tidbits, some more strategies here in the, the little bit of time that we have left. So first and foremost, we're not going to get it all the first time. Uh, there is a reason that the Holy Spirit was given to us to help us rightly divide truth. Pray about it. If you, especially when you find yourself in those difficult situations where you read something that just straight up doesn't make sense. Uh, the Holy Spirit is our guide, so we definitely want to make sure we're, we're praying it. And there is nothing wrong with and I would say it's even encouraged to pray Scripture back to God. Um, we're reading through this, and you talk to God about it and say, I don't understand these words. Or say to God, this is a wonderful promise, but I don't, I don't know if it's for me. Or God, I don't understand the purpose of Jesus sticking around for 40 days. Can you reveal that to me? Uh, praying through the Scripture is incredibly important. You do want to actively engage the Holy Spirit Secondly, uh, we also want to be imaginative about it. And I don't mean that we're conjuring up ideas out of thin air, but I do want to mean that we have the plasticity to think through new ideas. If we read something that is different necessarily, um, or if we read through something and it sounds different than a doctrine we've heard before, uh, it sounds different than a message that Nathan has given us before, I want us to have the ability to look, read, observe, and not just reject something out of hand because it doesn't fit the tradition or it doesn't fit the narrative that I have heard for my entire life. It doesn't mean that we won't eventually reject it. It doesn't mean that we won't uh, change our minds later. But I'm saying at least in the beginning, if all we're doing is listing all of these things and trying to understand what Scripture is telling us, we want to be able to think about it flexibly. We want to think about it plastic. We want to be able to uh, rearrange our own constructs. Uh, we would talk about thinking outside the box or being open-minded. 
Uh, I'm not saying that an open mind can't close on something when it's true. I am saying at least that we need to have the ability to look and read what's actually presented to us um, and not, not just reject something because it sounds different than what we've heard before, something that we've read before. <clears throat> so with that in mind, reading imaginatively, uh, don't be afraid to change translations. If you have the ability to read multiple languages, don't be afraid to change languages. And I don't mean just to the biblical languages of Greek or Hebrew. Um, if, if you have enough Spanish or French that you want to try and read a different language like that, again, a lot of times nuances from one language to another language are slightly different. So if you have that ability, by all means, go for it. Uh, I have a good friend who is mostly fluent in Spanish, and he said he was eye-opening to read the Bible in Spanish the first time because although the grammar is mostly the same, although the language itself, if you line them up one by one, are pretty much the same, the word selection, because there are different flavors of some Spanish words than there are English words, some of the word selection was eye-opening to passages that he could quote in English just because, again, the nuances of one translation to another, uh, although the words technically mean the same thing based upon their dictionary definition, the flavor is a little bit different. Just like every Creole restaurant you go to doesn't have the exact same flavor, every language, every translation doesn't have quite the same flavor, even though it's the same ingredients. Don't be afraid to sit down with these questions and rewrite out the synopsis in your own words. What's happening in Acts 1 through 5? Here's my two-sentence synopsis, or here's my three-paragraph explanation. Don't be afraid to write things out as you're thinking through uh, these passages. And again, I understand that this is not what you're going to do every day. You're not going to sit down with the Bible, open it up, read three verses, and sit down for several hours and rip it apart. But... When you run into the time, when we talk about studying Scripture, when we talk about actually understanding the Scripture, these are the types of things that you're doing uh, initially on paper, initially longhand, initially with a group, and then as you become more and more fluent in the Bible, as you become more and more fluent in Scripture, as you become more and more adept at understanding what's being written, a lot of this, this background information has already been built For example, if we're reading through Acts and we've already gone through and answered a bunch of questions about who Luke is, if we go back and read the book of Luke, now we have all that background information that's already been there. But we do have to start somewhere. So yes, there is some effort involved, uh, but the more you do it, the less it becomes effortful. So back to reading imaginatively, don't be afraid to rewrite passages, don't be afraid to use another language, uh, don't be afraid to read it aloud and bounce it off each other in a small group ses- session like this. Uh, there's a reason that God didn't give us one Christian, he gave us the church. Uh, I know I've presented about this before, we need each other. Uh, I don't have all the answers, I certainly don't have all the answers, uh, even if I do have many opinions. And I don't think anybody out there has all the answers either, but together we get a whole lot more. We have a whole lot more. We can get a whole lot closer. <clears throat> and don't be afraid to change settings either. I know this seems like a, an odd one, but again, remember this, this comes from a, a pretty academic setting where I, uh, 
the first time that I was exposed to this type of deeper biblical study was when I went to college and really dug into some of this. So changing the setting could often be as important as changing the translation. Um, I do not do my best work when I'm sitting at home with my family around because it's very distracting because I love them and I'd rather be playing with them sometimes as well as my children can be needy uh, and very interruptive. I also don't necessarily study very well when I'm in a library or something like that because there's a lot of other things going on. Uh, However, being in a library with a whole host of reference materials around me it gives me the opportunity to dig in a different place than I would if I was sitting at home uh, with just, you know, whatever reference books I have in front of me. Uh, in a small group setting, uh, reading, studying together has a different flavor. Uh, it, has, it brings out a whole different array of thoughts and opinions. Um, so as far as reading imaginatively, using the, your whole brain to understand this, don't be afraid to change change settings, change translations, uh, Put yourself in a different place, I guess is all I'm saying. <clears throat> Adding to that, we want to meditate on the Scripture. So we're, we're praying about it, we're thinking about it imaginatively, and we also want to be meditative about it. What I mean by that is we want to fill our mind with the Scripture. If I was going to really dig deep, if I was going to present uh, a message on Acts 1 through 5, or if uh, someone questioned me on something uh, in Acts 3, for example, when he says that Jesus was on earth for 40 days before the ascension, and somebody said, well, what does that matter? And I really wanted to come back with something intelligent rather than just be like, well, that's what the Bible says, so that's what I believe. If I really wanted to dig in, this is something that I would fill my mind with. I would read through Acts, and I would meditate on that passage, and I would pray about that passage, and I would think about it. Uh, you know one of those things where you fall asleep at night and you wake up with the answer because your mind's been thinking about it all night long? That's the, the kind of meditation we're thinking about. We're, our mind is full of this passage. So it doesn't hurt to memorize it either. And then we definitely want to think about it pur- purposefully, and we're going to add a whole bunch of stuff to this next week as far as purposefully. Um, we're going to talk about grammar, uh, verbs, subjects, the, the nitty-gritty of the English language. And the more you get into it, we can take the nitty-gritty of the English language. And if you have used a concordance or something to build those terms, we'll take and start pulling it apart Uh, both in English, and then if we have the ability, even understanding the nuances, the subject, the verb, the uh, actual sentence structure in other languages as well. So looking at verbs, looking at subjects, looking at adjectives and adverbs, looking at prepositional phrases, which for anybody who wasn't an English major, it means basically where the action is occurring, words like in and on and through, um, to, those types of things, and then all of the connectives. Uh, one of the things that you have heard often from Barney and Nathan up here is if you see a therefore, figure out what it's there for. Okay, If you see a so or a for, there's a good chance that the thing that was before it is just as important as what's going to be said now. So starting to, to build those things together. So just really briefly, if we were to do that, that, that type of sleuthing, 
in this first chapter of Acts, the first five verses of Acts, and we were to start to identify, just language-wise, some of the things that are happening, just, just language. The first account I composed, so the verb in that sentence is composed. The subject is I, so we have Luke saying, I did this, right? And then we have those connectives that we talked about where he says about, he's telling us why he composed it or what he composed it, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So then we also have a Jesus subject there with the verbs teach and do as well. And we, can, we could start to pull apart the language as well. Um, this is, again, once we've gone through these, all these W questions and we're really starting to, to ask, okay, if I want to know who Luke is, I'm going to start pulling the language apart a little bit as well. And I'll have a whole list, and again, I'm more than happy to send out my notes to you guys about things to look for. And we also kind of answered this question already, but what, as far as literary genre, what literary genre are we working with here in Acts. It's, it's like a history, yeah. Well, like I said before, Luke is telling us a story. In this case, he's giving us a historical account, uh, and this is the very beginning of that historical account. There are other literary structures that we need to be aware and be ready to identify, whether it's uh, biographical, whether it's historical, whether it's actually chronological, or whether it's built in a different, uh, a different literary form. Uh, it may not necessarily progress A to B, especially when we get into prophetic literature. It may not have a, this happened, and then this happened, and this happened, and then this happened. It may have a subject agreement where uh, all of these events, regardless of where they line up on a timeline, cause this event. Or all of these events, again, regardless of where they lined up on a timeline, were caused by this event, which may be in the future, it may be in the past. So again, timeline, understanding if there is a timeline, if it's chronological, is important. It may also be built on an ideological. What I mean by ideological is if you were to read, for example, the book of Romans and expect to follow it on a timeline, it's going to be very difficult. If, however, you look at it from the stance of this is almost a courtroom argument where he's going to progress from one idea, establish that idea, transfer to another idea that's going to build on top of his previous idea, go to another idea that's going to build on the top of his previous two ideas and build his case, it's going to make a whole lot more sense than if I'm trying to say, okay, this happened, check, then this happened, and then this happened. Okay? So, again, with all that in mind, as we start to investigate these W questions over the week before we meet next week, we'll want you to understand literary, our genre here is a narrative or a history or a story. Okay, we have this arc that's going to happen. So finally, um, the last couple things that we want to think about when we're reading, we're answering these questions, and I know I'm, I'm throwing out a whole bunch of stuff. You didn't realize that reading could be so invasive, right? Uh, we also want to not just zoom in and fry the ant with a magnifying glass. We also want to be able to zoom out and see the entire sidewalk 
and zoom out from the entire sidewalk and see the entire subdivision. Zoom out from the entire subdivision and see the entire nation. So this is not an isolated event. The first five verses in Acts are not an isolated event. So as you start to read this, and I'm going to encourage all of you to go home and, and really read through the first five verses of Acts, the first chapter of Acts, and really, like I said, the first five chapters of Acts is the story that we're going to be building through. Uh, write it out, make a chart, make an outline. I know it's some effort, but I'm, I guarantee you it'll be worth it. And then start to connect things back to the stories you already know, uh, regardless of how much Bible you have memorized or how much scripture story that you know, I guarantee that there are connections to other stories that you have heard previously. So if you can start marking those questions as well, like how does this connect to what I've learned before? How is the story similar to something that I have read before? How does this story in Acts connect to Paul's travels? How does this connect to, uh, you know, Old Testament events that were projected to happen. When he talks about uh, John baptizing in water, what is John's story? How, if we were to go from a super-duper zoomed-in approach, what does this word mean? Now we're zooming out to say, okay, once I have the story figured out in this little section, what does that mean as part of the whole? And that is as big as... In as much as this is as small as we want to go, reading out or telescoping out is reading as big as we want to go. Where does this fit in the book of Acts? Where does this fit in Luke's works? Where does this fit in the New Testament? Where does this fit in Scripture? Where does this fit in history? Where does this fit in the entire narrative of human existence? I mean, again, we could zoom out as far as you want. The whole idea of all of this, again, is not to interpret anything that we've read yet, not to try to take this little section of Scripture. It is entirely about reading the Bible in a different way. So we're going from, this is the way I heard it, so this is what I'm going to regurgitate. We're going to, this is what I'm reading, and I want to understand it. And if I want to understand it, it means I have to actually know what it is that I'm reading. So these are the types of questions and the types of strategies that we can learn to start pulling more and more stuff out of Scripture. So hopefully this, this is what your appetite for things to think about, meditate on, read about, research this week. Okay? And then next week, we're going to add some more, another layer of literary strategies about it. And we're going to dig more into this first chapter of Acts. So your homework uh, is sometime in the week. Read Acts 1 through 5 in a different translation. Again, Bible Gateway has every English translation of the Bible that's available pretty much. Um, there's a million different apps out there. New version of the Bible, Bible, uh, Blue Letter Bible. Uh, so read it in a different read it in a different translation. Write down some of these questions. Your questions and answers won't be the same as everybody else's, so don't worry about it. We'll try and cover most of them, and then we're going to ask, answer, and dig through some some of the grammar, some of the literary structure as well. So if there is a particular sentence that you want to zero in and be like, "Hey, this stood out to me." That's good. 
Those are the types of questions that I want to bring together and as a group we can, we can work through. But, so for, for this upcoming week, uh, Acts 1 through 5, start with those who, what, where, when, why questions. I'd encourage you all to, even if it's just on a, a cocktail napkin, make a couple notes about where those questions have led you. And then we're going to work on some strategies to dig into the nitty-gritty so that we can, two weeks from now, start taking what we've read and applying it and interpreting it correctly.